0: Welcome to another episode of the Sirkin Research Podcast. I'm Victoria Gamlin, and I'm here with my co-host, Jeff Sirkin. Hello, everyone. We've got with us today my friend, Tommy Treadway. He is the head of design at Measured. He's worked in many industries, both in-house and on the agency side, full-time freelance from startups to Fortune 500s. So Tommy and I first crossed paths last year at a fintech startup I was consulting for. We were ships in the night, but then we actually ended up working together at another fintech startup. We love the fintech. And then we met up in real life last week uh, when Jeff and I were in New York. It was great. We wanted to have him on because design is such a key part of B2B marketing, doesn't get discussed from graphic design, brand design, product design, UX design. We really don't hear much about it. So we wanted to change that. Tommy, welcome to the show.
1: Hi both. Thanks for having me. No
0: problem. So I touched very briefly on your current role, but can you tell us what your world looks like today?
1: Yeah. So for my nine to five, I'm currently working as the head of design at Measured Financial in New York. I actually live here in Brooklyn. And we're building a consumer lending product, which is really called a portfolio line of credit, which it kind of, in summary, allows you to take personal loans using your stock portfolio as collateral. It's a relatively simple process. You link your brokerage, you choose which of your stocks you want to borrow, I guess. Again, you can draw and manage your line of credit. And it's a seed-stage startup. We're a small team of 10 and honestly, a design team of one. Outside of work, I freelance and consult with founders and early-stage startups. I sit on the jury of awards.com. I do a lot of 3D art, a lot of reading about behavioral science and psychology, and I'm also a normal person who does non-design things. So I rock <laughs> climb, I go to shows, and I do a decent amount
2: of writing and journaling and just general like introspection. Awesome, That's great. So we're glad you're a normal person, but I do want to get back into the design piece. So with with such a specialty field like design, I'm just curious how you got into it in the first place. Yeah. So I'm not your like
1: typical art kid or never was from an early age, so I wasn't always sure that this is what I wanted to do. It was kind of a long series of sequential steps that got me here. I went to college at the University of Oregon, which is by no means a specialty design school. And I took every standard prereq class, your econ, business, science, and I just wasn't really interested in those. So I think I knew pretty quickly that I didn't wanna do anything traditional or vocational. But I started signing up for more creative, quote unquote, classes like art history, design fundamentals, computer graphics. And I thought those things were super interesting, but I wasn't exactly sure what type of job I could get from that. So I just kind of continued it. I had some encouragement from my sister. So I continued taking art classes and at the same time sort of exploring a little bit about photography. And that's where I kind of got my first role. So I got a job working with the Harlem Globetrotters as a fan photographer, which was a terrible experience. Um, I got an internship as a studio photographer working for a company called Evo.com, which is an online retailer for outdoor gear. And both those jobs were pretty brutal. So I decided pretty quickly I didn't want to go down the photography route. But I did gain a lot of experience in Photoshop through those roles, which mm, later on would become quite useful. Around that time, I had discovered my university had a program called Digital Arts, which was pretty broad and vague, but it seemed really interesting because it was a blend of kind of technical classes like computer science and creative classes, which was like color theory, your kind of standard design classes, typography, 2D, 3D. This makes me sound a bit old, but this also coincided with the launch of the first iPhone. So I think around this time, this was the first time that the idea of building apps and websites was kind of on my radar as a potential career path. So... I started to get the vague idea that I could do something with web design or digital design, but I wasn't exactly sure what. So coincidentally, another one of these long steps, the University of Oregon was one of the first few universities piloting this new Adobe product called DPS or the Digital Publishing Suite, which was a new piece of software just to build interactive editorial pieces and publish them to the App Store. So... I applied to that program, actually got hired as the design lead. It was called OR Magazine. And at the end of that, I kind of realized, like, not only did I have a lot of fun doing this kind of digital editorial design, but I started to realize I was actually pretty good at it. I leveraged that experience from there to actually get a job for the University of Marketing Department, which just exposed me to more mediums as a designer. That was really my first true design role. We did branding for on-campus restaurants and festivals. We designed posters and concerts for events around town. And my sister had actually another one of these weird coincidences had started working in advertising right around this time. And she really encouraged me to just continue down that route by letting me know like, hey, there's this agency world. They're hiring for a ton of design positions. This is actually like a viable career if it's something that you're interested in pursuing. So I kind of just continued down that route after college. I worked at an ad agency called Heat, which I think ended up getting bought by Deloitte. I worked at a digital agency called Elephant, which did work for Google and Apple. And the rest is history.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I used to be a photographer too. It is brutal. I burned myself out super quickly. So you've done both in-house and freelance extensively. So I'd love to hear, what is your experience then with each?
1: I mean, to be honest, the way that I see it, there's kind of three pillars or facets of design, if you will, in terms of like the contractual relationship. Mm -hmm. You have freelance and in-house, but there's kind of a third in between, which is agency world. And that is in-house, but it's actually more of a consulting sort of relationship. And the difference between all of them comes down to like sort of horizontal or lateral versus like vertical. It's depth versus breadth. And there's trade-offs to each of these. So at an agency, which was my first job, really, you get to work on a variety of clients and mediums. It's fast paced. There's long hours and usually not great pay, which is kind of Mm -hmm. the unfortunate part. But you do get a lot of exposure to other types of creative like writers, strategists and producers, which is great for your experience is seeing like how other creatives kind of approach their discipline. Then you have freelancing, which is definitely about breadth. It's really a horizontal experience where you work on a variety of clients and project types. You have full autonomy and you're involved in every aspect of the project. Mm -hmm. Usually you're working directly with stakeholders or business owners, but these are typically more shallow kind of project-based work that you deliver designs for and hand off to an in-house team or dev shop. You probably won't be involved in any of the later stage processes like reviewing analytics or performance, conducting research, et cetera. And I think the most difficult part about this sort of relationship or work type is you're expected to deliver and onboard like extremely quickly. So there isn't this kind of like learn phase that you get in-house where it's like come to know the people, get to know the product and the industry. You really are expected to deliver from day one. Mm -hmm. And this takes a really specific type of person. You obviously are doing sales. You have to pitch yourself to clients and constantly be actually like taking on new business. You're doing project management with timesheets, tasks, and deadlines. You're actually designing, which most people think of as your job. And then your your own finance and HR team. So you're invoicing, handling expenses, taxes, and healthcare. And that's a lot to really handle for one person or one individual. The last is in-house. I know this is kind of long-winded here, but in-house is really where you get like the depth. So that's the key difference between the last two is you're working for one client. You have consistent stakeholders, which are usually your sort of different pillars of the business with the different teams you're getting exposure to multiple life cycles and iterations of a product or project. And you usually have, I mean, depending on the business or the team size, a smaller set of responsibilities because you're collaborating with the different verticals of the business. So you're kind of afforded the time and space to go deeper on your discipline as opposed to having to, like you do in freelance, handle all of these different responsibilities.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I love how you mentioned that there's trade-offs to both. I don't know if this is true in design, but in writing, both copywriting and content writing and marketing and just in general, There's such a push for freelancing and so much bashing against W-2s. And it's really dumb for a couple of reasons. First, anyone bashing W-2s is just trying to make you their passive income somehow. Whether they're selling a course or a digital product. So anyone listening to this who's starting to drink to start your own business, Kool-Aid, i encourage you to observe who's telling you to do that because that is what you're doing when you freelance or starting a business, except as a creative, you are the business. And that brings with it its own set of challenges and benefits as well. Second, you know, one of their arguments for freelancing is that there's somehow less risk than having a W-2, which is absolutely ridiculous. Yes, a company can lay you off or fire you on a whim. You know, we're seeing that in real time, for sure. That's business. They overhired. and You guys bought the lie that COVID growth could last forever. I'm sorry. But You know, just because there's risk in a W-2 doesn't mean there's no risk in freelancing or starting a business. There's risk in both at the same time. Like risk in one doesn't cancel the risk of the other. And then lastly, you know, one of their big arguments for why freelancing is so great is that there's no ceiling to how much you can earn when you bet on yourself and correct, but there's also no floor. You can absolutely earn $0 as a freelancer. That's probably going to be a reality for a long time, actually.
1: Yeah, it's definitely tough. I mean, like I mentioned, there's trade offs to both. I think the best part that's most unique to design and copywriting and some of these other professions that have always come to appreciate is that freelancing is just a part of the profession. And you do have that optionality for variety because you can choose the type of environment you want to work in that fits your lifestyle or your needs the best. And there's the option to switch between them. And not a lot of queers necessarily have that. So right. it's definitely something special.
2: Yeah. And I think that's a great point where, again, it's not even that there is one right and final answer is that you can switch between them. And I was W2 and and now I've been, you know, had my own business for the last five years. And as we've talked about, there's a lot of stuff that comes with owning your own business that you have to, it's not just the work. You know, I, I got into this because of the specialty that I did when I was a W2, but now that's only a small part of my actual job. Right. And it's like, yeah, I have to run accounting and sales and marketing mm-hmm. and, and all of these things that were not my specialty. And, and now got to take those on too. Yeah, and like Victoria
1: mentioned, I mean you are a business and you now have overhead too, which is everything from your personal expenses that were covered before, your health care. And so that's a unique thing for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So I think there's really two types of freelancers. There are freelancers who do it out of choice and then freelancers who do it out of necessity who can't necessarily find a job elsewhere. So mm-hmm. there is sometimes this sort of, I don't know, perspective of looking down on freelancers that they all fall into the latter category, meaning like they can't get a job. But that's not necessarily true. Some of the best designers that I know and have worked with choose to be freelance
2: because they do want that autonomy and they're OK with the additional overhead that comes with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. So we talked about your path to becoming a designer, and it sounds from that that there's not necessarily a singular path, and there's a lot of ways. So how would somebody else, maybe either they're in a different specialty or they're coming out of school now, how would somebody else maybe become a designer?
1: There's three main routes, probably more, but you know the main three that someone can take is like university, which is probably the most traditional route. There's boot camps, which is a relatively new-ish approach I think the jury is still out for me on whether or not this is something worth considering. We can unpack that. And then there's the self-taught route, which I think is a totally viable option. So the university route, like exactly what you would imagine, you can go to a liberal arts school or a design-specific school like an SVA, a RISD, or a Savannah College College of Art and Design, like the really fancy, well-known kind of blue-chip design schools. The obvious benefit here being that you'll get formal training from professors and teachers with probably a great pedigree. They've worked for big clients It can do a great job preparing you for real world work. I wouldn't necessarily recommend my path, which is kind of like just generally going to university and paying it and stumbling your way in. But you can do that if you want. The obvious downside to this is that it's expensive and this requires you to kind of know what you want to do at a pretty young age, which I would say a good majority of people don't. Mm -hmm. Then there's boot camps, which are kind of popping up left and right. I see this as sort of like the shortcut, if you will. I think people are kind of gravitating to this because it seems like you can take this 12 week course and the minimum salary is relatively high compared to other roles. And this is where you pay for an intensive 10 10- to 12 week course. They're pretty specific and focus on what they're trying to teach you. Obviously, their goal is to kind of cover as much ground as possible and prepare you as best as possible for employment. And to be honest, like I generally think that these programs are mostly bullshit. I'm saying that as somebody who worked on a general assembly course, but we can save that for another time. The last option, which I think is really, really overlooked, is just being self-taught. And I think maybe that's easy to say as somebody who you know was afforded the chance to go to university. But the design community in general is so large now. There's courses on YouTube, Coursera, Masterclass. You can clone files from Figma, Framer, Webflow. You can a thousand percent learn by duplicating, deconstructing or reverse engineering someone's work to understand how these things were done. So there's a different approach depending on your needs, your resources. One option may be best for you. But I think, again, that's a really nice thing about design and about some of these career fields is that you can kind of get into it with a relatively low barrier to entry, so to speak.
2: Yeah, and it reminds me a lot of analytics, sort of the field I'm in and have spent my career in, is that it's sort of a specialty and really it doesn't necessarily, at least analytics doesn't really align with a specific college major per se. It certainly didn't when I was in school. And now there's kind of similar options. You can go back either to school or you can get those certificate programs. And the thing I've always said about analytics, and I'm curious how this might apply to design, is. I've always said you want to do analytics, do it, meaning like within whatever the current job is, you, you might be a designer, or you might be a copywriter, but how can you actually start looking at the work you're doing, how it's performing, what actually are you looking at? What are you trying to move the needle against and actually doing it in sort of real environment in a corporate job for me is sort of the best experience. And I, I used to joke, you know, my, my college roommate went on to get a PhD in operations research so he could become a data scientist. And then when he graduated, my joke to him was like, oh, now I can hire you you know, to work for me because, you know, all you have now is theoretical training. And so to me, it's at least in analytics, it's just data is never that clean. And, you know, so the theoretical world, everything works out nicely. And it's just a matter of like, no, you have to, you're going to use dirty biased data and you have to make the best of it. So really just doing it for me has always been the best experience. A hundred percent.
1: I mean, my first job when I interviewed for an agency in San Francisco, I remember I had a bunch of concept work in my portfolio from school. I had some real work having worked at the university marketing department and the creative director sitting on the other side of the table really didn't care much about any of that concept work. He pretty much tossed it right out. And at the time, I didn't necessarily understand that it actually was kind of hurtful. But I understand that now looking back is like you're trying to Get as much real, tangible work because the environment and the constraints are just so much different. And it's not something that you can replicate even in a university or at a boot camp. You just have to sort of get out there. And the reality is that you're just trying to get from deconstructing someone's work or getting that sort of ground level experience to delivering real work as quickly as possible any of these things, it's a matter of that's like getting swings at the plate, so to speak, which means like actually doing real work with real clients, with real constraints in a real environment that's paid because it's always going to be different than doing spec
2: or sort of concept work. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, your title is the head of design. And so but within there, there's certainly there's UX, there's UI, there's product design. So I'm curious if you could break down for the listeners, you know, what's the difference between the different types of design, if you will? I am the head of design. As I
1: mentioned, it's a small startup. We're a team eight, which I find kind of hilarious because I'm a head of design of one. Obviously, the idea is that we are successful and grow and I am eventually not a team of one. But just to kind of clear the air here. But titles are kind of a hilariously contentious topic in terms of where we can draw the line in a sand, especially between these type of roles. So I'll give my perspective, but please take it with a grain of salt. These are just semantics. But hopefully maybe this provides a little bit of clarity, I think, of the different sort of deliverables that go into the discipline. So you have a spectrum. And on the left side, you have really like user experience and user research. In my opinion, UX is arguably barely even a design role, at least in the very traditional sense where you're working with typography and colors your primary focus is going to be behind the scenes work, make the product user friendly. Mm -hmm. You're working on user research, information architecture. You're doing user testing, documentation. If you are even designing at all, you're usually delivering like low fidelity, grayscale designs or wireframes. Mm -hmm. Depending on the team or the company, you may be delivering high fidelity designs, but that definitely isn't going to be your strong suit. The sort of middle part of the spectrum is UI designers, which is what most people think about when they think about product designers. It's really the visual side. And their focus is going to be on creating visually appealing, intuitive products. This means they're concerned with more like Quote unquote typical design responsibilities like layouts, typography, iconography, the colors that go into a product or a design. Um, if you're a product designer, you're working on componentry as well, which is like buttons, forms, pop-ups, your typical UI elements or interface elements. Then kind of on the far right side, or really I see it almost as like a layer encapsulating both of those is product designers, which I've always thought of as like full stack designers in the same way engineers can be full stack. They're really design generalists who should be capable of handling both of those responsibilities on UX and on UI. In my personal opinion, these responsibilities are just so intertwined. You can't really do one well without the other. So segmenting these is kind of a fool's errand, minus the research part, which is an entirely different skill set.
0: First off, I love that you acknowledge that research is a separate skill. A lot of marketers
1: don't realize that.
0: So say I'm a startup making my first design hire. Who do I hire?
1: That depends on the, you know, the size, the stage, and the maturity of your company. As you obviously grow, the relevancy of each of these types of roles is going to vary. As a startup, you're going to be operating lean and cheap. So you can't afford to have someone who can't deliver on brand, product, web, and kind of everything in between. So you're likely going to need to default to a product designer or at the very least like a design generalist, however that comes. But as the company grows larger, you probably will want to staff roles or designers who are more specialized you'll probably want to get UX researchers as you get more into the data. You'll want to hire interface designers so they can be focused solely on the visual side of things. You'll probably even hire like the in-between roles between design and engineering, which is like a creative engineer. So as that team starts to grow, you can kind of fill the gaps mm. and sort of, I don't know, hire those specialty roles. But for the 90% of businesses who aren't FANG or Fortune 500, you're better off just staffing these generalist product designers.
0: All right. So this is a great segue into my next question. So I personally think what makes good design is a very tired combo. Uh, it's very contextual. But there is another conversation that I do want to have because I think it'll be super helpful to anyone building one or looking to revamp theirs. And that is what makes a good design program? And also what is a design program? Because i had actually never heard that phrase till I met you.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's like calling, I don't know, an agency like a studio. It's kind of tomato, tomato, a design program is any team or team members, like either full time, contract or even a vendor who helps you execute on your design tasks. When people think of a design program, there's typically brand and then product. And sometimes these are the same team, depending on the size of the company. But there's a few different ways you can skin the responsibilities. But brand is going to be your like marketing designers. They'll work on the website sometimes ads, sales collateral, social content, maybe even like your print or packaging, if that's relevant to you and your product is going to be your UX team user experience. So they'll work on design systems, your platform, your app, and also sometimes your website, again, depending on how you split the responsibilities. So the latter part of the question in terms of what makes a good design program, there's kind of two pillars, if you will. One is the cultural side and the other is operational Culturally, this applies not just to design, but I think across all teams. It, the, you want the basics, obviously, reasonable hours, non toxic teams or bosses, decent pay and healthcare, probably not a very competitive environment. You probably want no bullshit or micromanagement, freedom to experiment and push boundaries without the fear of being wrong. If you've got a relatively junior team, you'll want to have opportunity for mentorship or growth and skill set development you know, transparency and good communication, all these things that apply to not just design teams, but across the board. But specific to design, I think one thing that kind of helps it stand out is that you're going to want to focus on craft and the attention to detail in the designs of the product you build. Most people who get into this are doing it because of it's a field of passion. And so they really want to work on a team that prioritizes their field and kind of, you know, supports them in doing the best work that they can. So, operationally, you'll probably want flexible deadlines or at least reasonable timelines so your team can deliver quality work if they Mm -hmm. do care about craft. You'll want to make sure that they're decently staffed and resourced so they have the ability to contract specialist resources like illustrators, motion designers, or photographers. Probably make sure they have clear responsibilities and processes between the team members. And one thing that I think is often overlooked on teams is that they probably can and should be sharing work or thoughts, at least publicly. The best teams that I know of do a really good job of sharing their thought processes and the care and craft that goes into the products they produce, and it shows. There's teams like Linear and Vercel, Evervault and Stripe. These teams do a really good job of sharing the thought process and the sort of the amount of effort that goes into the craft that they are building into their products, and it really shows. And in general, like, good designers want to work on good teams. And that's, again, applies to not just design teams, but across all fields. And the better you can do at attracting good designers, I mean, it's better input, better output. So the better team members that join, the better your product or your brand is going to be, and likely the more successful that your business is going to be. You're also going to have the benefit in general, if your team is kind of well, well well-rounded, is low turnover. Everybody knows that training people takes a long time. It's far more cost-effective to retain and promote your talent from within
2: than to have high turnover or constantly be recruiting for empty seats. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. It's funny. It's like one of those things. And I say the same thing, actually, from a marketing perspective, retaining your customers is actually a lot easier and cheaper than finding new ones. But yet, that's still not the priority. And and something because you mentioned earlier around training, especially. And to me, I honestly do think that's maybe the number one thing that gets overlooked. And so to me, in especially in big corporations, what I've found in my experience is that They hire you for the role that you're going to be playing now, but they don't really put much thought into where you could go from there. It's very much that you fit that role and they don't really necessarily give you the skills and you kind of have to find those on your own. So certainly I resonate a lot with the idea of why that would make a good program. And the other thing I just want to call out is as a non-designer, especially I especially love what you're talking about in terms of showing really the process and the companies that do that well. Because I think when you have no idea, sort of all of the work and all of the thought that goes into that finished product, again, I think that's where some of these fields and in, in some companies' marketing gets gets known as sort of like the, the pixel department or whatever, you know, and it's like, I think a lot of that is really helpful to actually see the amount of thought and care and time that goes into that.
1: Yeah, I've worked on a lot of website redesigns, and I think one of the most common overlooked things when you talk about the audience of a website or who's the consumer of it, if you will, is that it's not just about your customers, but also about the potential for talent. And people who are looking at working at your company are coming to your website, they're judging the website itself, at least on the design side, the quality of the work, the attention to detail, and that says volumes about what the experience might be like on the inside of these companies. So it's a really important thing there.
0: Okay, so there are certain things you should never say to a copywriter if you don't want them to hate you. I'm just kidding. There are certain things you should never say to a copywriter if you want to have a productive, healthy working relationship with them. And in my opinion, this is true of any creative. So I'm super curious. And I also think this will be helpful for the audience. What are some things you should never say to a designer?
1: Yeah, there's quite a few. I think (laughs) the most common ones first would probably be like, can you make it look like insert client work here? Branding is kind of like clothes or like a haircut. Sometimes what looks good on someone else may or probably will not look good on you. To be honest, you have to be true to your brand and who you are as a company internally. Otherwise, customers will sniff that out and the lack of authenticity will be clear from a mile away. So typically when you're trying to replicate someone's work, it's just impossible for you to do because it's not who you are truthfully. The other side of that is like you have no context for the amount of effort and financial investment that it took to actually deliver those resources. And oftentimes it's undermined. So that's something to be really conscious of. The... Second one would be that I hear this a lot too, would be like, oh, I just need a quick fix. And I'm sure you get this in copywriting as well. Things very rarely take as little time as you think. There is this meme that goes out about like motion designers or it's a GIF, if you will, that just shows like someone pressing a keyboard and it's like the button just says animate. And the reality is like, if you've ever done any animation, it's the most time intensive like just most difficult profession possible. And I think people have these impressions of designers or of, you know, motion designers or copywriters that it's like, oh, just change a few words or move some things around, which sort of oversimplifies the profession. So people don't like that it undermines, obviously, the amount of effort it takes to produce a well-thought-out design. What seems simple to someone on another team probably isn't as straightforward to a designer. And to be honest, for every, like, you know, I have these draft files in my Figma files and for every, like, one, I don't know, sort of, artboard or page or sort of view that I present there's probably 50 ones that got tossed out that I sort of tried and just were dead ends so it's never as simple as hey this is going to work quickly and people don't like that their time is sort of i don't know presumed to be simple the third thing would be like prescriptive feedback i think of any kind designers have full context for all the connected pieces of a brand or a product and the reality is changing just one element can throw off the entire system so when someone says who doesn't have this full context, oh, change this one piece. You're sort of opening up a can of worms to this sort of like Rubik's cube, where like you kind of have to, to solve one piece, you have to mess up three others. And so the designers really have the full context to be able to understand like, okay, if we change this one, that kind of unwinds all of these other things and interconnected pieces about the brand or the product that we're working well together. So prescriptive feedback kind of, it unwinds a lot of effort or a lot of connected pieces that they may not be aware of. It also kind of strips people of, I don't know, they're sort of Dignity and respect to solve those things themselves, right? Like, it's really much more helpful for people to say, hey, give an example of why something doesn't work, like the legibility on this, you know, view looks is too difficult or hard to read, but they shouldn't be prescriptive about the point size or the type size that it should be changed to. So there's kind of a a balance to strike there. The last thing, and, you know, this was, I guess, a little bit ridiculous, but people saying, like, we need this ASAP, I think, you know, this happens on larger teams, I get it. Everybody wants it yesterday and everybody has their their, the center of their own world. So they want things as quickly as possible. But like likely on a team, a designer is delivering work for three, maybe four teams, sometimes even more. And so you have no idea like what's on their plate and how much work that they're delivering for other teams. And the reality is like just because you manage your time poorly and you need things quickly doesn't mean like this is suddenly our problem in general. So we see a lot of that. So good. We
0: want copy like Apple or Nike is the joke I make about B2B. And yes, they ask for these things because they don't know who they are, or because they don't know who they aren't, and they aren't willing to find out because that requires disqualifying people from their target audience. And also, it's like your software does not have the emotional impact of me peeling the film off an iPhone or slipping into my Air Max 90s. I'm sorry. You guys sell software to software companies, and that's fine. What's not fine is thinking you can emulate these companies instead of figuring out how to speak directly to your target audience, whether that's with your copy your design or whatever. And such a good point about resources, software companies who want Apple or Nike copy, you better be ready to pay for Apple or Nike copy too. And a lot of y'all aren't UX poetic about the importance of copywriting and then still think good copy and good content costs two cents. And design being a system, copy is a system too. And I've actually never applied that language to it, but I love that. You know, the whole website tells a story. One word change can literally change the entire website. I'm not joking. Certain words correlate to the larger narrative and tweaking one can throw the entire thing off. And the visuals too. Nobody gets that the visuals of copy change every time you change a word. And I've watched as clients go to tweak my copy. They didn't stay clients for long. And it doesn't just make zero sense because they had their product manager do it. But it also throws out the entire balance of the page visually. And it's like, yeah, maybe because you can speak English and write doesn't mean you're a copywriter. And for anyone listening, this doesn't mean don't give feedback at all. But there's a way to do it right. And in my opinion, asking why a designer or copywriter did something is the best way to go about it. If you don't like something ask them their process or how they came to that decision, because a good creative can defend their work down to the letter and down to the pixel. So that's what I would suggest for anyone who kind of feels like they're walking on eggshells around their creative team. Try approaching it with curiosity instead of just saying what you don't like.
1: Yeah. And I mean, copy and design, those two roles specifically are so closely tied together. Like I see it a lot in websites, where obviously these teams are, there's a lot of overlap here is like, we will build or prep images that are closely tied to what's being said on the page. Mm -hmm. And so if you change context or colors like those Mm -hmm. things, even down to the animations or the interaction details are so closely tied together. Mm -hmm. that if you change one thing without having the copy change in line or vice versa, Mm -hmm. it kind of throws off the whole relationship. So there really just isn't, again, these things are done with intention. There isn't a lot of room for just like, change this, change that. So it just needs to be a little bit more consideration for these systems as a whole.
0: Totally. And- it's interesting. I feel like no other profession is treated with so with as much distrust as creative profession. And there are absolutely bad creatives out there who have delivered a horrible experience. I get it. But for the most part, I found myself asking, why did you hire me so many times? And I think that's true of copywriters, creatives, anyone in the creative field. If you can do it yourself, do it yourself.
1: I agree fully. And the kind of sad reality that most people realize pretty quickly when they get into the profession is that like 50% of your time is going to be doing your job and the other 50% of your time is going to be trying to justify you being Mm -hmm. able to do your job. So explaining to someone sometimes in circles why you made certain decisions, why they should trust you, and sometimes even just walking them through all of the dead ends that you already explored Mm -hmm. is such a time suck, but it's just something you unfortunately have to do sometimes.
2: Totally. Well, I appreciate this conversation as somebody as the non-creative in the room. <laughs> it's actually really helpful because I work with a lot of creatives and, you know, I run into some of these same exact situations. And I guess the only thing I could add from an analytics perspective, which is similar but not quite the same, is that, you know, when I'll do an analysis and I'll say, you know, here's the results, here's you know, sort of what's happening. And then people question it because it's not what they wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. Right. And again, it's like, okay, well, if you wanted your revenue to be up by twenty percent, then you, you don't need me to tell you that. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's like yeah. Or if you want me to tell you it is or isn't sustainable, what well, you know again, but it's just what I find is my analysis, which is as objective as I can make it, just doesn't align with what they want it to be. Even though I always say, and you know, my joke about not being a creative intentionally has been like, I'm on the side of data, it's black and white, it's objective. Of course it's not, but probably much more so than the sort of the more pure. Yeah, I mean, that sort of perspective exists on design actually as well, surprisingly, which is like maybe I'm
1: doing a rebrand and I have a specific idea where I've chosen colors that kind of fit the direction of the brand. And people may say like, oh, I don't like this. But to be honest, it's not about what you like. Mm -hmm. It's about what fits for the brand and the voice and the sort of strategic direction that you're taking. So sometimes because it doesn't fit the narrative of maybe what people imagined or what they prefer, so to speak, it just doesn't fly for them, which is not the reality. Like I don't design things just that I think are cool. Mm -hmm. I design them because they work. And the same thing maybe in analytics is like, I'm not presenting this to you because I think necessarily like this is my
2: preferred output. It is just right. the reality of the situation. Exactly. I, I don't have a horse in the race as I as try <laughs> to say. Right. Yeah, exactly. So you talked a little bit uh, or at least about your role at Measure, but I'm curious. I would love to hear in terms of like some of the other projects, you know, what are some of your favorites that you've worked on?
1: Yeah, so this probably won't come as a huge surprise after all the things that we've talked about, but my favorite projects are all zero to one projects where I've contributed to kind of all facets. The first was a freelance project I did with a friend, I don't know, eight, nine years ago. I, we worked with the Microsoft Story Labs team. Story Labs produces news and editorial content about kind of the goings-on at Microsoft. But my friend Becca and I got to work on one project with their team, which was really just an interactive news piece, if you will, that had a lot of creative freedom and time to explore and pitch multiple directions. There wasn't any hard deadlines or results we needed to hit. We were kind of just able to come at it from a place of play, which was super fun. We did a lot of prototyping. We worked with illustrators. We got to test a bunch of different directions. I don't even remember like which one ended up getting chosen or if they even went with another team, but like it was really fun just to kind of be able to explore options and just, again, come at it from a place of play. The second one was Spacetime, which um, when I lived in Germany, I worked at this all remote agency called Planetary and Spacetime was an internal product that we managed. It was specifically because we were an all remote team built for our team specifically, which meant that it was about scheduling and time zone management and being able to find when people were online, find meeting times, so we were our own end user, if you will. Um, and what was cool about this is we had a really tight feedback loop. We, again, were the end users of our products. So we were able to ideate, get feedback, design, build, and ship all within like the confines of our own walls, which was really cool, metaphorically speaking, because we were all remote. But that was fun because that was really like, I think you can build the best products when you understand the users the best. And the way to understand the users the best is to, to be that user. So that was really fun for us. We had done, you know, a little bit kind of going off on a tangent, but we had done this project, which was really a marketing stunt for Spacetime called Pizza Time, which was to promote Spacetime and the scheduling feature that we had. And Pizza Time was basically just a website where we used the Domino's API. You could hook it up to your Spacetime account and it would let your team pick a time and it would order pizzas from everyone's local pizzeria and have them delivered at the same time for an whole remote pizza party. And that was really fun because again, it was something what we were just doing creatively as a stunt. There wasn't any really desired output. And the irony of this whole thing is actually that pizza time has blown up do, partly due to COVID and all these remote teams. I think, don't quote me on this, but I think they did close to either like somewhere between like three quarters of a million and a million dollars in revenue in a year last year. And SpaceTime has ironically shut down because Google has since obviously launched some of these features and time zone management, which has absolutely crushed it. So um, it's just funny how those things work out. And ironically, the projects that are just the most fun with no desired sort of output sometimes do the best. The last one, I think that is my favorite or Yeah, I think it definitely is my favorite and not to be, you know, a simp for my current employer, but measured. And I think truthfully, it's because one, I'm building a project or we are building a project that will deliver a lot of value for our customers when it comes out. Um, We're still in, you know, closed beta, so it's not ready yet. The second part is like I have full control over all creative aspects, the brand, the website, the platform and the design system. And I think. Like on a personal level, I'm in a great place lately. And I think that shows in the work through the concepts, the consistency, and just the thoroughness and attention to detail. So it's been really fun to kind of, it's been a sprint. I've only joined, I joined in March. So it's been about six months. We've delivered the first version of the platform. But it's been fun to see all of those things come together in a really, really nice way.
0: That's awesome. I love that space time, pizza time story. That's so cool. Okay, lastly, what are some things in design that nobody is talking about, but should?
1: All right, here's my hot takes. I'll give you a few of them. <laughs> yeah. The the first thing is like, in general, people are spending so much time inside and around their computers. Like, just get off your computer. You can get your inspiration from the real world. Mm-hmm. Great design is in museums, and concerts, and mm-hmm. public spaces, and not just to be like a contrarian, but it's true. Like, there's only so much you can get from Pinterest and Dribbble and Instagram, like that stuff is so cyclical and the algorithm is just feeding you things that everyone else is reproducing. It's why we're seeing all this, like this convergence of brands that all look the same is because we all have the same sort of inputs in terms of where we're gathering our inspiration. So just like broaden your horizon a little bit, like get off your keyboard, shut down your computer and go outside. The second one, my second spicy take would be some of the most boring industries in companies are the ones where you can do the most interesting and exciting work. They're the most that are ripe for change. They need to be updated. They probably have legacy processes or experiences. There's the most opportunity to drive a high impact for those businesses, whether it's, you know, healthcare and health tech is having a moment, but even in like construction and self-storage, like a lot of these industries are really seeing a revamp and actually a drive of really talented designers are going to them. I guess another one would be like, I don't want to be an ass on this, but I do think boot camps are driving the industry down a really negative path. There's an overemphasis on tooling and in my opinion, not enough focus on design basics and foundations, like balance, spacing, hierarchy, all of the really like design foundations that you learn at university. Design camps are kind of skipping right to those and trying to figure out like, okay, how do we teach people just the systems and processes to be employable? And so they're shortcutting all of these really important things. And as I mentioned, like being good at design, it is just a matter of swings at the plate. And so there's not really any way to necessarily shortcut these. And by doing so, you're creating an entire generation of people who like have a really thin understanding of the field and of the discipline, which is kind of an unfortunate reality.
0: Oh, my gosh. So good. Where to start? I love your first point so much. A lot of B2B marketers love to complain about boring marketing as a content strategy. And it's like, yeah, because you're boring and you spend all your time behind a screen and you sell software to software companies. What do you expect? I've been sitting on a post coming for swipe files, but... My biggest issue beyond them being a complete distraction from getting to know your customers is that the ads in them weren't created by looking at a swipe file. They are created from being out in the world and observing it. And copywriters and marketers, I know you guys are all obsessed with personality-filled copy, but in order to write it, you need to actually have one. A lot of you guys don't because you haven't made enough bad decisions in your life and had to live with the consequences. And it shows. You also spend too much time on the internet, scrolling social media, and that's why you have no ideas and why you're burned out, because you put your brain into a digital microwave for hours at a time and you don't realize you're being subconsciously influenced by all the trash you see. And you guys are also confusing high engagement with high quality, and those two things are definitely not the same. And you see all this in SAS, all the blending of ideas with the stupid tech blue and the stupid chubby illustrations and the great blanding. I learned that phrase from you, Tommy. I thought it was the seeping of the millennial aesthetic into SAS, but it really is its own phenomenon.
1: Yeah, I think there's both. I mean, actually, interestingly enough, maybe it was two three days ago, Johnson & Johnson redesigned oh their century-old yeah. logo to it's be, no you know, and, and that's happening across the board with yes. like these high fashion brands. Yes. And there's just this convergence in sort mm-hmm. of, I don't know, similarization yes. for lack of a better word of all of these brands. You see it specifically in consumer packaged goods, yep. um, like walk down like a soda aisle these days, you'll see all mm-hmm. these like prebiotic trendy sodas mm-hmm. that all look the exact same. And it's an unfortunate reality. And obviously, there's always ebbs and flows in design trends yeah. and marketing and whatever. Those things do happen. But there does seem to be, I think it's a result of the way that we gather our information mm-hmm. and our resources that is driving everybody towards a, a similar route.
0: Totally, I'm surprised it took Johnson & Johnson this long. Like they held out for a while. But yeah, yeah, it's like the Great landing or the Great sans Serifization of
1: all of yeah. those. Yeah, there was an interesting take I saw on LinkedIn from the CMO of Coca-Cola, actually, who was saying basically the opposite perspective, like there are certain things that you understand almost as untouchable. Mm -hmm. And our logo is one of them, like the bottle is another, like there are just certain things that for our brand, like you should be more focused on how to sort of move them forward, respect them without the need to sort of like completely trash them and start over. There is a way to sort of like, I don't know, mature them and to move them forward with culture without completely throwing them away.
0: Right. And also like no one asked for a new logo, right? Like, yeah, refine your product, get to know your customers more. Like there's so many bigger fish to fry. I feel like so many brands come out with a rebrand. It's like nobody and then like brand, hey, we rebranded. It's a cheap tactic.
1: The reality is like your logo, again, like there's companies like Nike and I guess Apple's probably not a good example because they've changed us quite a bit. But Mm -hmm. Nike is a great example. They've maybe done some riffs on their logo, but it remains the same because the power of their brand is not in the logo at all. Like sure, the simplicity does wonders for them in terms of its application on shoes Mm and materials, whatever. But your brand and the experience experience that customers have is what drives and gives value to that actually icon mark or that that logo. It's not the inverse. You don't design something that people mm-hmm. are like, well, oh, this looks cool. I love this brand. You create experiences for your customers that they love and that they're loyal to. And that is what the, creates the value around your brand. So changing your word mark, your logo just doesn't do a whole lot.
0: Right. So it's such a paradox because while the value doesn't lie in the logo, you know, the logo doesn't matter. But changing it, it does matter, right?
1: Yeah, and it's dangerous too. Yeah, like It can obviously unwind, in Johnson & Johnson's case, like a century of hard effort and work to actually build the sort of relationship with your customers mm-hmm. trust.
0: And then I love your take on boring industries. Not only are they ripe for innovation, but boring pays the bills. Jeff and I live for boring and mundane because they're often cash cows. And then the too much emphasis on tooling. Yes, it's really funny. In B2B marketing, there's both. There's this over-reliance on tools, but also a vilification of them. B2B marketers are either relying too much on attribution software, for example, or making attribution is broken their entire personality. And it's like, no, you guys, I'm sorry. It's not broken. It's always been less touch. It's never told the whole story. You guys just thought it did. And then the not enough focus on the basics, too. In marketing and copywriting, there's this focus on everything except the fundamentals and except refining your craft. Marketers will literally do anything to just not have to sit down and work. And for anyone wondering why everyone hates marketers, it's not because they're always trying to sell you stuff. It's because they like talking about marketing more than they like actually doing it. Copywriters, at least new ones, they want to do everything except write. They also think that chat GPT is somehow going to save them that getting their ideas from the same robot that everyone else is getting their ideas
2: from will help them stand out. Yeah, and and I just want to add a couple of things. I mean, you talked about, you know, the idea of essentially getting outside your own walls and getting off the computer as a designer. And so the idea for me, like marketing and business books, like are all pretty terrible, to be perfectly honest. And like, and I would even say in my world, one of the most valuable experiences I had was early in my career as a consultant because what you found was that there are things that you can take from different industries and Mm -hmm. so you know maybe finance has figured something out and so, wow, how can we apply this here? And so I always loved that idea. And then the other thing that I think is so critical that you kind of touched on a little bit is the idea about context, that it's not just about sort of skipping the fundamentals and going straight to like what are the programs and the processes you need to actually be able to to do it, build a design, but it's about the why, right? Like, and, and especially when it comes to analyzing data in my world, you need to be able to understand at least the business function. So, okay, this is marketing. What does the data even mean? Otherwise you actually can't do effective analysis. It doesn't matter if you're a data scientist that can write all the code in the world and you went to a certificate program or even went through and got a PhD. But if you don't actually understand the company you work for or the functional context of the data, you really can't do effective analysis.
1: Yeah, I think some people feel like it makes their jobs maybe more defensible if they are hard skilled and do have this technical understanding where they can point to like, I can do this and it makes them feel comfortable in their in their Mm -hmm. role. But the most difficult part and like of any job, I think, is reading between the lines. And again, Mm -hmm. like you said, understanding the why, like you can be the most amazing, I don't know, expert in Figma ever. But if you don't understand like the strategy behind building great products or producing great work, like you're always going to fall short. And there is a place for those people like design systems. Designers tend to be far more focused on tooling. They have a broad, broad understanding of other disciplines, but they are really good at managing componentry and systems and files and like organization, which is its own skill set. But there just has to be something more. And to be honest, if you do only focus on tooling, there will be a ceiling in terms of how far you can go with your profession, because Eventually, you're going to become less and less involved in the day to day, the actual software itself, and more on the strategic side of things. And in order to get there, you're going to have to get more comfortable being uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, that's such a good point for a lot of creative professions. At some point, you're stopping in the trenches. And so, what then, right? Where is your value mm-hmm. add if you're not in Sigma, if you're not in the Google Doc? So, yeah, you do have to be able to think strategically, but that also means you have to have been in the trenches, right? I think there's, at least in marketing, there's, to any strategists who really don't know the process for creating copy and how that works with design and all that
2: stuff. So it's both and. Right. Or the tools will change. And in my right. world, I was a SAS certified coder. And that seemed to be that that was going to be the analytics programming tool of choice. And then R comes out in Python and all mm-hmm. these other things that kind of enlapped the field and I realized pretty quickly, yeah, I don't want to be an expert in any one tool. I right. want to understand the foundational, mm-hmm. why are we actually using it? What are we trying to achieve? And inevitably, there'll be some new program that you actually don't need to code. It's all no code. And the same is true across all of these professions, but it's really just not to become too tied to any singular technology because that won't be the, the thing you need to know. Yeah, that's a really good point.
0: At the end of the day, as a creative and even as an analyst, especially, you're paid for how you think. The tools are going to come and go.
2: Tommy, this has been great. I know I learned a lot and especially about how to work with creatives. I, I have a lot of notes on the side. So thanks you guys for that. But this has been a, a really great conversation. And so thanks so much for your time and being here with us. Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me on to
1: talk about these things. There's a lot of misconceptions in design I and mean, a lot of different perspectives. So I'm happy to share mine. But again, it's only one in a, you know, audience of a million. So I appreciate you guys having me to at least you know, care a little bit about what I think.
2: Well, to our audience of a million, thank you guys for <laughs>
0: And Tommy, where can people find you?
1: I'm online decently like most people. My website is probably the best one. As I mentioned, like I work with startups and founders. I consult. So my website, tomtreadway.com. I'm on Twitter at tomtred, And that's about it.
0: Awesome. Thanks again for your time.